Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. A comedian called Dan Antopolsky won the uh, funniest joke of the Edinburgh Comedy Fringe with this joke. Hedgehogs, why can't they just share the hedge? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Stephen Merchant, comic and co-creator of The Office. That'll help break the ice at your office. Later, you'll learn some things you didn't know from actor Gary Oldman. He stars in the new movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, hitting theaters this week. He plays the spy, not Mm. the Tinker Tailor, like I originally thought. Interesting. Also, Gail Simmons of Top Chef, artist and musician Terry Allen, plus instant author Lou Beach tells six stories in three minutes. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these cultural headlines. Madonna will perform during this year's Super Bowl halftime show. Microsoft is revamping its Xbox Live into a premium cable box. Donald Trump has been chosen to host a GOP debate on December 27th in Iowa. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the Paris Review, the latest issue of which came out this week. Sadie, what story are you talking about this weekend? The one thing that immediately comes to mind is the uh, the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards, and they just announced the winners. And as I understand it, the competition was very hot this year. No, no pun intended, because the rating is not hot. Did they give out trophies for this award? What do they give out exactly? I think it may be an honorific. I'm a, <laughs> a cold showerhead. Ideally, yeah. Now, is this writing about bad sex, or is it bad writing about sex? It's cringe-inducing fictional descriptions of sex acts. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What actually um, took the crown this year was a retelling of the Oedipus story. Oh. Yes, by David Gooderson, who's, you know, a very well-regarded author. But then he's in a storied tradition because Tom Wolfe won a couple of years ago. And it's not easy to write really bad sex writing. (laughs) Is there a part that you can quote on the air for a family audience? Well, here's one one choice excerpt. Hmm. Ed stood with his hands at the back of his head like someone just arrested while she abused him with a bar of soap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, I think the problem there is that's not even dirty. It's clean. Oh, it's and, the soap. Uh, it, and it's not over because <laughs> then they rinsed, dried, dressed, and went to an expensive restaurant for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> not sexy at all. Well, I don't know. I guess it depends on the restaurant. So they had clean sex before lunch. Exactly. I think, I think we just have jealous judges there. <laughs> oh, man. Sadie. Thank you very much for the semi-naughty small talk. Anytime. (laughs) And now, appropriately, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's our patented history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1963, one man changed the world of sports. Now, even the jocks at your dinner party will be hard-pressed to guess who it was, Michelle Phillippes here with the story. Armchair quarterbacks, you owe your Sundays to Tony Verna. No, he wasn't a football coach. Verna was a TV football producer, and in 1963, he invented the instant replay. For two reasons. First, because football plays happened so fast, it was easy for TV announcers to miss the details. 
Verna was sick of watching amazing action happen on the field that announcers didn't even notice. But more importantly, on TV, the game was kind of boring. Verna says there was so much downtime that, quote, you could make a sandwich between plays. So in a televised college game between Army and Navy, he deployed a video system that would help him fill that downtime by showing plays again. And it turns out to be a thriller as Carl Stickway, number 16, quarterbacks the underdog Army team to new heights. It was not a smooth debut. In fact, thanks to technical glitches, Verna only used his new device once, in the fourth quarter, to replay Army's final touchdown, after which confused viewers flooded CBS with so many phone calls, an announcer had to assure the TV audience that Army had not scored twice. Still, within a year, instant replay was a sports TV standard. As for Verna, he never made any money from his invention. But he did go on to an award-winning career, like directing the Live Aid broadcasts in 1985. So that was the history. Now it's time for the drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with Al Sotak. He is the head bartender at the Franklin Mortgage and Investment Company, which, despite the name, is a bar. Uh, and it's in Philadelphia, where the 1963 Army-Navy game was played. Al, what cocktail did the story inspire you to make? So I did a cocktail that I, I hope kept some of our uh, blue-collar roots here in Philadelphia <laughs> represented. So you used Budweiser or Yingling? Yeah, well, I did use beer, actually, yeah. Just this last week, we had a guest bartender here, Nick Jarrett. He's an old friend of ours. And him and my partner, Colin Stern, sort of invented the term for what happens when you top a cocktail with beer. Okay. And they decided that they were going to call that blue collaring. Um, <laughs> I like and that. And so I decided that for, a, you know, a Philadelphia-inspired cocktail, uh, particularly the instant replay at the uh, Army-Navy game, that I would blue collar this cocktail. I like it. I did a drink with acid phosphate, uh, which is an acid that you can balance against sugar. Whoa, wait, you just have that stuff lying around? Yeah, you can buy it. Uh, there's a company called extinctchemicals.com, and they'll sell it to you. Wow. It's a traditional ingredient in old sodas at the soda fountain. All right, well, tell me more. What are you going to do with it? So it's a, it's a teaspoon of acid phosphate, okay. um, a, quart, a quarter ounce lemon juice, and then three quarters of an ounce uh, blackberry syrup, and we make that in-house here. It's real easy. Uh, one ounce Smith & Cross, which is a, a naval-inspired rum. Ah, there we go. Naval rum because it was an Army-Navy game. Right, and also because it's delicious. That too. Uh, one ounce of Rittenhouse bonded rye, and I guess, you know, it being bonded, it's sort of federal, so there's that. All right, So you, and Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia is kind of the fancy neighborhood there. Yeah, man. You know, back in the day, Rittenhouse was bottled and produced here. It's a delicious rye. All right. And so you have that and the navel rum. So you just add all all those ingredients in a tin, give them a good double shake, and then I put it on ice in a Collins glass and topped it with about three ounces of a bitter IPA. Wow. So you blue-collared it with an IPA. I blue-collared it with an IPA. Yeah, that's right. And, And what is the name of the drink? I just called it the Instant Replay. Yeah. Well, the thing is that with acid phosphate and blackberry simple syrup, I doubt people are going to be able to replay this recipe at home. So (laughs) it'll it'll be more like the week-long replay. So, Brendan, yeah, was that a drink or instructions for making a chemical warhead? (laughs) Phosphoric acid? Well, he actually said acid phosphate. Uh, Actually, it was was phosphoric acid. Uh, You know, Rico, I was there. He said phosphate. 
Let's go to the tape. I did a drink with acid phosphate. Yes. Ooh. Tape doesn't lie. Ladies and gentlemen, you can replay all the drink recipes we've ever had on this show. You will find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. This week, it's Terry Allen. He's a celebrated artist, musician, and frequent collaborator with David Byrne. He's here to list his favorite lost artworks. But first, he tells us about one of his own. My name is Terry Allen, and just released a very limited edition record of a live recording I did in 1971 at Al's Grand Hotel. Uh, Al Rupersberg is the, the artist that did this hotel, which was actually a working hotel. Each room was kind of an installation, and I played at the opening at kind of the lounge area. It was my 28th birthday, actually, that, that night. Oh, down, down, oh, down, D, red bird dancing in custody. Going down New Orleans, red bird dancing, loud red bird swing. I didn't really think about the tapes for, you know, a long time, 40 years. And it was about a couple of years ago, Al found them. So, you know, speaking of lost items, uh, here's a list of lost things I think are important. First, there's a movie called Payday, based very loosely on the life of Hank Williams. I'm guessing it's the early 70s. Rip Torn starred in the movie. It's one of those movies where it has little scenes that just always stay with me. There's this ugly scene after a gig in a parking lot where Rip Torn has a fight with some drunk and kills him and convinces this bodyguard, who isn't very bright, to take the fall for him. Hey, Hoss. Come over here a minute, please. You think you can stand still for this one? I sure would appreciate it. Sure, Mari. Oh, it should have been me anyway. Thanks. And then immediately cuts to him playing his guitar, writing a beautiful love song. So it's just jarring like that, the whole film. And I'm sure you can probably still find it. It's just called Payday. But I saw it in a movie theater, and my wife and I were the only people in the theater. So it kind of was born lost, I guess. Another that I would put on the list is a piece by Edward Keenholz called Five Car Stud, the piece that for 40 years was in storage in Japan. It has resurfaced at the L.A. County Museum right now. It deals with the civil rights movement early years in this country. It's in a dark room. It has five automobiles with the headlights shining in. That's the only light in this large space at the museum. And there are five or six figures, sculptural figures, emasculating a black man. It's an incredibly powerful scene. It's a very heavy subject. I still think it's, it's something that's very important that if you're an American, you go see this. It hasn't been ever been shown in America before. It's at uh, L.A. County Museum of Art, and I think it's going to be there for another month. Also, uh, uh, musically, 
you know, change the tone a little bit. <laughs> there was a great record called Motel Shot made in the late 60s, and it was Delaney and Bonnie. Delaney and Bonnie rented a motel room. They moved an engineer and a soundboard in there and all the equipment and invited uh, Dwayne Allman, Leon Russell, Ry Cooter. All of these great musicians for the first time kind of got together and sang. I've got a never-ending love for you From now on, that's all I want it's most soulful rock and roll and blues. One of my favorite records of that whole period. But I, I haven't talked to anybody who ever heard that record. I've got an old cassette of it, and I've got an LP of it that's totally scratched up. But if you do have a chance to get it, you should get it. The guest list from Terry Allen. His newly found concert album is called Live from Al's Grand Hotel. It was just released as a super limited vinyl-only record. All right, we're going to take a break. Later, author Lou Beach turns Facebook posts into a literary form. Like? Me too, with a little thumbs-up icon. (laughs) And coming up, Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons tells us how not to greet a TV star. Wow, you are so much skinnier in person. Please pack your knives and leave. But then come back. The Dinner Party continues in a minute. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that keeps you ahead of the cultural conversation. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, standing here on the vanguard. Don't fall off that edge, my friend. I will not. It's sharp. Coming up, author and illustrator Lou Beach talks about his amazing name. Yeah. Just kidding. He reads from his new book, 420 Characters. Oh, that's sad. And later, Chris Dolan, editor of the video game magazine Kill Screen, tells us what the kids are doing in the basement. Kids or your middle-aged spouse. Yikes. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, and here to answer listener questions about how to behave is someone all too familiar with dinner parties, Gail Simmons. She is the director of special projects at Food & Wine magazine, and she is, of course, a regular judge on this little chef competition show on Bravo called Top Chef. You may have heard of it. Heard of it. I've heard of it. Her forthcoming memoir is entitled Talking With My Mouthful, which is maybe counterintuitive for a segment about etiquette. Nonetheless, Gail, thank you so much for being here. That's the point, right? Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be here, guys. You know, we were on Top Chef Masters once. Yep. You were? Yeah, we were. Where was I? You were not on. Yeah, you weren't on that. What episode. did you do? Sorry. Uh, we judged a quick fire no. round last season. I was only on two or three episodes that mm. season. But mm. we did get to spend some time with the host, Curtis Stone, who uh, we're both over six feet tall, and Curtis Stone is taller than both of us, I think combined. Yeah. He's a big guy. He is. He's a strapping Australian man. <laughs> it was very daunting. <laughs> All right. You know food. You know uh, how to behave at, at a dinner party, so I think you are the ideal person to ask our first question. Excellent. Uh, this is from Kristen via Facebook. Facebook's in America. It's on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. I, Some say. I, I will just say that Canada was one of the like, first and biggest adopters of Facebook. I mean, Canada <laughs> loves Facebook. There's only like seven of us, and we all live very far apart from each other. It's a very big country. Oh. And we were very quick yeah. to adopt Facebook. We should point out that you are Canadian and, and went Correct. to McGill in Canada. Correct. Which, um, which just further qualifies you to instruct boorish Americans on how to be polite. That's right. Here's the question that Kristen has. What do you do if you try a dish and it is really awful? I imagine it's not okay to spit it out. Also, what was your favorite dish that sounded odd but really tasted good? 
So, Kristen. That was a double question. Yeah, two-part question. She snuck it in there. That's right. Sly. Impolite. But I have answers. Okay. Sometimes it's okay to spit it out. It depends on who you're spitting it out in front of, only because (laughs) I'll tell you this. On Top Chef, I've never spit anything out. Okay. But both Tom and Padma have, sometimes to prove a point, sometimes because they were genuinely afraid for their health. Really? (laughs) And if you, I believe that if you are afraid... For your own life, it is okay to spit something out. So, like shellfish that wasn't cooked sure. or something well, like shellfish that. Shellfish that isn't cooked well, I guess is oysters, okay. Right? Oh, it depends okay. on what it is. It, if it was like it had gone bad or it mm. was still moving, I do not otherwise try to spit things out at a table, especially in front of my host at a dinner party. Mm. If you, It's really inedible. You know, a very casual pass of the napkin <laughs> See? is sometimes, I guess, what you have to do. That's my sometimes policy. you get a really a piece of grizzle that you just can't get down. That's right. Yeah. It's like magic. You yeah. just need to be respectful about it. So, right. The second question. The second part. There's a lot of stuff I've, I've eaten on the show the first thing that comes to mind this past season on Top Chef Just Desserts, uh, there were some terrible failures, like a garlic ice cream with falafel mm. panna cotta that was dreadful. I mean, no one wants to eat that. <laughs> wow. No one wants to eat yeah. that. But what stood out? One person used a very thin fried piece of chicken skin as a garnish on her cake. And it was so good because it had crunch and it had fat yeah. and salt. It's almost like bacon, putting bacon in a sweet thing. Right. Although sometimes that doesn't work because there's too much smoke. But in this case, there wasn't, so it worked. Um, the winner of that challenge was a guy named Matt, a citizen in, in Washington, D.C. And he made like a gravy foam. Wow. And he made a cake. Gravy cake? Well, no, it was a gravy <laughs> foam, like a whipped cream. Wow. Um, and it all really worked, and it was bizarre sure. and ridiculous. So just to recap, uh, a quick pass of the of the napkin over the mouth and fried chicken skin uh, with cake. <laughs> Correct. Okay, we have another question, if you can handle it. And this is from, this person has a location in Santa Monica, California, but not a name, mm. LT. Any witty quips in response to the inevitable, when are you getting engaged? When are you having babies from elderly relatives over the holidays? And And this is... I'm going to be going home for Christmas. Me too. I'm going to get these questions. Yeah, me too. I get them all the time. Your elderly uncle, Uncle Mo, <laughs> who's 93, asks, when are you having kids? And your response should be, when are you? <laughs> you know? What? But what if Uncle Mo, because we, we know Uncle Mo, says something like, right after I finish this fried chicken ice cream. Oh, and man. you say, me too. <laughs> but not with you, Uncle Mo. That's crossing a line. That's uh, uncomfortable. I want to come to your dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> so you just take it straight on, just throw the question right back at him, because that also just highlights, mm-hmm. like, look, come on. Really? We're going to have this discussion? That, that's exactly yeah. right. You know, uh, I equate this also too. I'm often, you know, recognized when I'm out. And the question that amazes me that I get all the time is, wow, you are so much skinnier in person. (laughs) You are so much prettier in person. You look so much younger in person. Wow. Thank you. You're like, thanks, Uncle Mo. Just flip it, Uncle Mo. (laughs) Flip it right back at them. That is amazing. That's like the very first thing you're told, basically, in etiquette. Don't say that about a nice lady. Yeah, Rico and I get the opposite. They're like, you guys actually sounded all right on the radio. And (laughs) And now we meet you. Jeez Louise. You really let yourselves go. Here's a here's a third question. Chris in Brooks, Maine writes, Bacon is good and all, but do you ever just want to say enough already? I do, and I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Bacon has its place, but people get a little overzealous. The problem, I think, is that as with any ingredient, you need to use it only when it enhances what you're eating, not mm-hmm. blankets it. But how did bacon become the poster child for this type of thing? Because there's lots of salty, smoky. I mean, you know, there's beef jerky. There's My all-time favorite food, by the way, beef jerky. Really? Yeah. Really? Top wow. three. Top three. That's I don't know why that blows me away. But why? why do you think bacon took that title? You know, because I think bacon is this 
you know, it's the highbrow, lowbrow mix. Well, that's what it I was really say. symbolizes that. Bacon is everywhere. Mm, you can get right. it at the corner store, mm-hmm. wherever you are. Yeah, it's an equalizer. And there's like a friendly mischief thing to put it with a dessert. That's right. But it's yeah. also not that big a deal, no. you know. That's right. That's yeah. right. And the first time it was awesome, and the third time it was decent, and now I'm sort of. <laughs> I like when we ban things. We we have we have an anti cupcake campaign. Let's I'm in. Say, no more no more bacon. Okay. Yeah, no more bacon, no more cupcakes. Right out. All right. Speaking of outs, here's our last question, uh, which we ask of all of our etiquette guests. What is your most memorable get together? Details, please. Well, okay. The the big splashy sexy one was just me and 1,499 of my fellow friends last New Year's Eve. You know, I never do anything for New Year's Eve. I was invited uh, with a lot of fellow media to the opening of the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Las Vegas. Oh. And it ended up being really what I think was like the party of the century, where Jay-Z, Kanye West, Beyonce, John Mayer, <laughs> Ben Folds 5, and Florence and the Machine performed. <laughs> Who are those guys? You know, yeah. small indie alternative Are bands. they Canadian too? Canadian <laughs> Okay, bands. all right. And it was... Just three days of no purpose except to have fun and dress up. And when Jay-Z got on stage to perform, he looked out at the audience and he said, this is the best smelling crowd I have ever performed for. (laughs) It was just... I thought you were going to say he looked out and said, Gail Simmons, you're thinner than I thought. Right. You are a lot (laughs) younger looking in person. Gail Simmons, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I feel like we're all smarter and we're all going to be better behaved now. Well, smarter I'm not sure about, but at least you will use a napkin. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. Time to eavesdrop. Lou Beach is an illustrator turned author. 420 Characters is the name of his new collection of short, short stories. This week, we overhear him reading a few dinner party worthy selections. Hi, this is Lou Beach, instant author. Uh, I'm here to read from my new book entitled 420 Characters. All of the stories are based on my Facebook status updates. Uh, please don't change the channel. They are confined to the 420-character limit that Facebook has, uh, or had. They're up to 63,000-something now. Um, so I'd like to read a few of them for you. They, as I said, they are 420 characters, letters, spaces, and punctuation. So it's a real compressed form. I had an idea that lasted more than four hours. I called my doctor. He said it should be removed. I said, that's a good idea. He said, which, your idea or the removal? I said, I have no idea. He said, fine, then we'll bill your insurance. Are you my mommy? Said the little blue egg. No, dear, you are a plastic trinket full of sweets, said the brown hen. My baby is over there. And she pointed to a pink marshmallow chick being torn apart and devoured by a toddler. The hen screamed and woke up, her pillow wet with sweat, the sheets twisted around her legs. Christ, I hate that dream. She reached for a smoke. The long cargo ship pulls itself across the ocean and comes to rest at the port. In the morning, it stands upright on its hind legs and with resolve heads toward the business district and settles into the middle of the block. It removes its raincoat and folds it 
puts it on the roof of the community center, then opens its doors to share the wares that brave the waves. This is legend. This is Ikea. In 98, Pasker and I subcontracted to paint a suspension bridge that spanned the Mpozo River in Congo. One day, while adjusting the compressor, we saw 30 or 40 paramilitary guys running our way with machetes and AK-47s. We were terrified, but as they got closer, they began to laugh, pointing at the spreading wet stain on the front of Pasker's pants and ran past us. Once again, Pasker had saved our lives. The house was tucked into the bottom of a cul-de-sac, surrounded by a high brick wall. One of the bricks was missing, and in the cavity lived a tiny man, Ray. He shared the space with a finch, a lovely lady from Indiana, Jill. She often gave Ray rides to the drugstore so he could pick up his medication, and he in turn constructed a nest for Jill out of cotton from his prescription bottles. There was no hanky-panky. I lay the book on the floor, open it to the middle. It's a lovely volume, green leather covers, engraved end papers. I remove my shoes and step into it up to my ankles, knees, hips, chest, until only my head is showing, and the pages spread around me, and the words bop up and down and bump into my neck, and the punctuation sticks to my chin and cheeks, so I look like I need a shave. Author Lou Beach reading from his brand new book, 420 Characters, a collection of stories that originally appeared as his Facebook status updates back when Facebook limited updates to 420 characters. You are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. In case you're wondering if you wrote out everything I've said since Lou Beach stopped reading, it would be exactly 420 characters in length. And now... Time for Chattering Class, where we talk with someone who knows something we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. Our guest is Chris Dolan, editor-in-chief of the highly respected video game magazine Kill Screen, and with the end of the year fast approaching, he's going to school us on this year's trends in video games. And Chris, welcome. Great. Great to be here. I think this week... We have to start any conversation about video games by mentioning Words with Friends. <laughs> this is the Scrabble-type game you play with others using your cell phone. Alec Baldwin is so addicted to it, he wouldn't stop playing on an airplane this week, and he got kicked off the plane. Can we safely say that this is the game of the year? I wouldn't necessarily say it's the game of the year. It's, it's not my favorite game that I've played this year. But it is part of a trend of games where you can take turns. Um, they're a little more like board games or a little like back when they used to play chess by mail. You send your moves over the internet. Whenever your friend can get around to it, they respond. These games where three or four years ago, people who never would have been gamers or said that they were gamers all of a sudden feel they have to keep playing those games. <laughs> right, can, you, can you recommend one of these games that's a little maybe more under the radar than Words with Friends, you know, something that we haven't heard of? Um, there's this game that I've been playing. It's similar to you know, the old board game Risk uh, yes. called Warlight. And this was introduced to me uh, by my friend Ben Fritz at the LA Times. And all of a sudden, it seems like half the game journalists I know are playing this thing, <laughs> completely addicted to it, and yet no one actually talks about it. You know, everyone's filing their stories on oh. Modern Warfare 3 or what have you. But then at night, they're sitting there making their <laughs> warlight moves. They're keeping it from the rest of us. Yeah, it's this, it's this like little secret. And, and, you know, it doesn't look like much when you first see it. And the way people get you hooked on it 
is it's a casual thing. It's very simple to get used to. People are like, oh, this won't take any time at all. <laughs> Just play for a couple minutes a day. We'll have a lot of fun. And then the next thing you know, you're like, you're like texting people like, why haven't you gotten your move in? <laughs> these evil geniuses that design these games. Why are they trying to destroy productivity in America? I, I think it's, I, I don't think that was what they meant to do. Okay. But it's definitely pulling me down a rat hole. <laughs> All right, what what else should we be paying attention to in the video game world? Well, we just published an issue about sound in games, sound and music. Ooh, and um, Perfect for radio. Let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's graphics. Yeah, I mean, graphics are, are phenomenal. You can see amazing things on the screen, but sound hasn't quite kept up. And so we tried to feature some games. Um, so our writer, Daniel Rendau, did a really nice piece about a game that is built. It's kind of an art game. There's only, I think, one in existence. And what, it's one copy on, of it? Yeah, one copy of it. I mean, you could almost think of it more as a sculpture in a way. Um, wow. It's called Deep Sea, and it's by Robin Arnott. And it's a deep sea diving mask, or actually, I believe it was a gas mask they made it out of. I hope but it's the former. The latter seems creepy. It's a creepy, well, it is a creepy looking mask. What you do is you, you put it on your head, and it shuts off four of your senses, and all you get is sound. And as you go through the game, you kind of hear, you hear your own breathing, you hear kind of the air bubbles. And you hear monsters coming towards you. Oh, no. And you have a little joystick and you can, you know, use the joystick to shoot missiles at the monsters by kind of listening for where they are. But it's, it's very claustrophobic. One of the things that makes it claustrophobic is that it has a microphone that picks up on the sound of your breathing and amplifies it. Oh, man. And blocks the sound of the monsters. Sounds like the worst portions of Blair Witch Project made real. Exactly, right? That you're, 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 you're like trapped in this thing and you can't see and you know that if you breathe, they're coming for you. <laughs> I, one of the things I was kind of hoping to get out of this segment is maybe some ideas for gifts for the holiday season. <laughs> I think that's more appropriate for Halloween next year, maybe. And it is funny because there's another game called Papa Sangri that you can play on an iPad. Again, it's a sound-only game. And it's it takes place in the land of the dead. So again, I don't know what it is about yeah. sound-only games having to be horror, but I think that it's, you know, you, you turn to sound for information, right? You hear you hear footsteps, you hear rustling, like the stuff that kind of puts you on edge, whereas visuals are, you know, you look at the screen, you're like, oh, everything's okay. Look, I can see that mountain 100 miles away, and I don't see anything coming after me. Yeah, right. You're, you're safe. How about something that I would give as a, as a holiday gift? Maybe like your underappreciated game of the year or something? It's a Japanese game called Dark Souls. That's my game of the year, but it's a tough game. It is a role-playing game. It has a fantasy setting. You know, you're in there fighting monsters with a sword or whatever you carry around. But, but what sets it apart is there's just an incredibly difficult and unforgiving game. You sort of try and make a little progress and then you fall into a trap. You, you just keep dying and dying and dying. But every time you get a little farther. And, and, you, and you like this game? I love this game. I think that says something about you, Chris. I think it says, yeah, I, I don't know if it says anything good. Um, <laughs> well, you're a hard I, worker. I'm a hard worker. I'm someone who, I, yeah, I don't expect rewards unless I put in a certain amount of suffering and endurance. That's right. It's very Calvinist of you. Yeah. Video games, by large, have, have gotten easier and easier. You can play on an easy setting. You can kind of blow through things. It's more about checking out every part of the game than sort of mastering it. Mm. And what's neat about this game is it doesn't have like this wealth of content, but every part of it is just really well made, and it sort of demands that you pay attention to it. All right. It, you know, in difficulty, it's sort of like the most difficult miniature golf course in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of perfect for holiday season, actually. And I, I made my mom watch me play this uh, over Thanksgiving quite a bit, actually. And she found it really engrossing to watch someone 
do these difficult things and get invested in that challenge. And if I accidentally ran off a cliff, we'd both go like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's so frustrating. That's, um, that's cool of your mom. I would, I would think that you would say something like, why didn't you invest this much time and energy into, you know, cleaning your room? Yeah, exactly. Or doing the dishes. I never knew you had it in you all these years. Chris Dolan, editor-in-chief of Kill Screen. Thank you very much for schooling us. Sure. So, Brendan, I have kind of a fear of depths, oh, yeah? I guess you call it. So that diving game is one thing I'm never going to play. Whoa, what just happened? Uh, I can't see. I can't see. I'm just playing with you. Oh, my God. I just turned off the lights. Man. Oh, my God. All right, we're going to let Rico recover for a minute. Coming up, I find out why all of a sudden everyone hates gluten, and actor Gary Oldman tells us a secret. I can play a guitar upside down. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Someone give me a Xanax. Here. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, you'll hear a new track from the band Chairlift from their forthcoming album, Something. Hmm. And we speak with actor Gary Oldman, star of the new film, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. That's right. So, Rico, have you noticed who hasn't been invited to the cool dinner parties lately? Us. Yeah, but maybe we shouldn't be talking to our audience about that. Oh, you know? uh, I right. mean, Russ. Yes. Russ hasn't been invited. <laughs> That's right. To the Russ. Parties. Russ and gluten. Mm. It seems like no one eats gluten anymore. That's true. This poor protein composite found in wheat and grain has been blacklisted. It's it's treated like secondhand smoke these days. It's true. People will be leaving Santa gluten-free cookies next thing you know. Exactly. It's, it's a travesty. <laughs> so I decided to find out what's going on. Mm. I reached out to Erin McKenna. She owns Baby Cakes, a vegan bakery in New York and L.A. that's renowned for its gluten-free baked goods. And I asked her point blank, why does everyone hate gluten? <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily that people hate gluten, but I think that more and more people are trying out a gluten-free diet and seeing incredible differences in their health mm -hmm. and therefore have decided to just eliminate it completely. You know, it's also the media coverage, so mm -hmm. it's in people's consciousness more and more. And so it's easier to immediately think when you're feeling sick hey, maybe I have an issue with gluten. Well, what is the problem with gluten? You know, I don't know for sure what's the problem across the board. I know that if you're celiac, then your body attacks gluten as if it's a virus. Mm -hmm. So you get really sick. There's also just a sensitivity to wheat in general mm -hmm. for people like me. And we just get bad headaches. We feel like almost hungover, stomach upset. See, I thought that's just what it felt like to be alive. You know? <laughs> um, by the way, can you explain what gluten is and where it's usually found? Uh, gluten is the protein in wheat and many other grains that adds viscosity and stretchiness to the dough. It's, you know, what makes bread so delicious, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so how do you make gluten-free things taste good? The way that I've found to be the best method is a combination of garbanzo and fava bean flour rice flour, and then some arrowroot and potato starch. Whoa. And then there's this stuff called xanthan gum that acts as the gluten. It, it binds the batter together. Xanthan gum. Wow. That doesn't really sound yes. healthy either. Uh, celiac disease is a serious thing. I read somewhere that... 
There were in 2003, there were 40,000 cases diagnosed, but now there are like millions of cases diagnosed. I know. And that shift, you know, to be honest, makes me a little skeptical. And and add to that, I have friends, all these friends now claiming that they have that disease. And, and it makes me think, really? Like, how did we survive so long without knowing about well, this? Well, I think that and this is just my theory, is mm-hmm. that over time, wheat flour has changed. It's not what it was when our parents were growing up. There was a time when there was a wheat mill in every town, and mm-hmm. everything was fresh. To me, because wheat has become so hybridized, I think that a lot more people are finding that they're allergic to it more. Yeah, that makes sense to me on one level, but that's not the same as having a medical condition that requires you to yeah. no longer eat pasta, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't really speak on it. I just, yeah. all I know is what, you know, what I've been that through. That people are buying what I'm selling. Hell yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, look, your bakery's named Baby Cakes, right? Yeah. Which yes. is a great name, fun name. Thanks. Um, it's actually my name. Lots of people called me that growing up. Oh my up. God. I can't believe So we have you to stole... get you a t shirt. Yeah, did you overhear <laughs> someone calling me Baby Cakes at the train station? <gasps> You're the you... only one. <laughs> but That's crazy. Maybe we, you can help me brainstorm a better name than gluten free because gluten free uh, is so awkward. Let's call it, um, this is a good challenge. I like this. I'm I'm obviously removed gluten, so I like a challenge. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, we at the bakery we call it GF. But, oh, GF's not bad. Um, GF. GF, it's I like just GF. Two letters. Yeah, with a nice symbol, you can get that designed by someone who obviously is gluten free and hang out at your bakery with a laptop all day, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not spending money. Um, oh, I love those people. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. But do you find the gluten free people are a little more persnickety? You know, you can tell. Yes. I won't tell. Yeah, they're a little more yes, like particular. absolutely one hundred percent. There's two reasons. Sometimes it happens because it's a parent who rightfully is really nervous about getting their child sick. I can see that. But then there's people who self-diagnose and are a little bit... Mm. Um, it's the self-diagnosers, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it, they tend to be a little... <laughs> they read an article and all of a sudden they're freaked out about a few things. Yeah. I think somebody gave it a term. It's like some form of um, eating disorder. Hipster? No. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. <laughs> Hipsters usually come in and they're like, I want... Gluten. I love gluten. You know, they try <laughs> oh, yeah. to be oh, interesting. contrary. Oh, no, wait. Am I one of them? It's more of like a, an obsession with eating healthy and organic and clean. Mm. How about a pain in the ass apian, <laughs> perhaps? <laughs> no. I love all my customers. So, Brendan, I like the point in that interview where you question whether or not you're a food contrarian. I did not do that. My point exactly. <laughs> anyway, Aaron sent me a box of gluten-free baked goods. Yeah, and? I didn't eat them because I'm gluten-free free. Oh, right. Yeah, but everyone else said they were great. You're, you're gluten positive. That's so old school. <laughs> Our guest of honor this week is Gary Oldman. He played Sid Vicious in Sid and Nancy, Dracula in Francis Coppola's Dracula, Sirius Black in the Harry Potter movies, Commissioner Gordon in the latest Batman films. This week he stars as Mr. Smiley in the new film version of John le Carré's Cold War thriller Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Gary, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. You just welcomed me to my own show. I did. Thanks. It's great to be here. Love this place. For a long time, you were known for playing villains, these kind of very colorful, over-the-top characters. Uh, weirdos, if I may say so. But the last few years, I've seen you playing more against type. And this role seems to be 
the pinnacle of it. This is a character that is so still and composed. Is this something that you sought out, a, a change of pace? No, no. It's, um, you, you can manipulate a career, you know, to an extent. You, you have some control over it, but you don't obviously get offered everything. And there's all those other actors out there. I guess we're all sort of chasing the same roles. If we could just get rid of all of them. If I could just get rid of them all, I would play everything. Um, but no, I stumbled into the whole Harry Potter thing, you know. And because it was such a secret what was coming next, one never knew if Sirius Black would come back or, you know. So you weren't signing on to a franchise, a character that was going to return. But he came back and it continued. And then I was lucky enough to get involved with the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy. And they are good guys. I mean, Black is Harry Potter's godfather and Jim Gordon, I guess, is Mr. Virtue himself, you know. I, lo I love Sirius Black because in a way you're playing with your type. When that character appears... He is described as a madman, an escaped criminal, who, and we expect the Gary Oldman we've come to expect, the yeah. screaming crazy man. Yeah, and I get to scream and be a little crazy for a while, but it turns out that this rather has a great heart. Do you think that filmmakers are now starting to see you that way, now as somebody that they can have fun with who audiences expect you to be? Yeah, certainly that one. But you are at the mercy of the industry and, you know, the imagination of the people that are casting you you get typecast a bit. You, you really even don't notice it. It sort of kind of creeps up on you. I never sought Tinker Taylor. I mean, it came in as an offer. I can imagine it being daunting because, again, this is a, a kind of character I don't often see you play. Well, I've sort of jokingly said this is a part I've been waiting for for 30 years. If, if you stop someone on the street in the UK, of my generation, certainly... Smiley is, he's as famous as Sherlock Holmes or James Bond. If you said George Smiley, they would say, oh yeah, he's the spy from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Andy was made famous on the television series in the 70s by Alec Guinness. So the role was challenging, but delicious because it was reined in and didn't require me to sort of bounce around like a sort of, you know, pinball. But, but the dragon I had to slay was Guinness. This is the guy that who's in whose shoes you have to follow. Yeah. And other people had played Smiley. James Mason, Denham Elliott, Anthony Hopkins. Total nobodies. Total nobodies. So that was daunting. You're going to do something for me, Peter. I need the duty officer's logbook for last November. I'm going to have to send you up into the lion's den. If you're caught... You can't mention me. I'm sorry. You're alone. It's a quiet thriller. It takes its time. It has silence. It, it, I feel assaulted sometimes with movies where it comes at you with a wall of sound. You know, there's no silence. It's all score. You leave a movie, you, you want to take a Tylenol and go and have a rest. But this is something, I mean, it occurs to me as I'm speaking to you, you started off in a lot of very big indie roles, but suddenly you're in the biggest franchises around, Harry Potter, Batman. You ever expect that in your career? Well, I trained at drama school, and certainly in the late 70s, you had no film or television training. At all? No. Everything was geared towards the theater. Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and those kind of, you know, those guys were in films. 
And it just all, a lucky break, you know, you fall into it. I was in a play and they were casting Sid and Nancy and they came to the play. So in that sense, any film role that you ever got was not planned? Very, very few. I worked with Ridley Scott in, in Hannibal, the sort of follow-up to Silence of the Lambs. And I had read the book and I called up Ridley and we chatted for about five minutes and then he kind of offered me the role over the phone. My two experiences with the Scott brothers have been really unprecedented. I met Tony Scott way back and he said to me, I've got this Tarantino script. He said, it's called True Romance. He said, let's just cut to the chase. He's a white guy, he thinks he's black and he's a pimp. And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> Script unread. A role I'm sure informed your performance as Smiley. All right, we ask two questions of all our guests of honor. The first is, if we met you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask you? You're smiling. Are are there a lot of them? No, but uh, Sid and Nancy was obviously the first thing I did. And I have a very strange relationship with it now. It's such a long time ago. I get asked questions about that. I mean, I was asked a question recently, which was one of the dumbest questions I've ever been asked, which is, which is more dangerous, vampires or spies? So that was... I guess it depends if the spy has uh, wooden stakes in his gun. A spy with a silver bullet? I don't know. You have, a, you have a strange relationship with Sid and Nancy. Do people expect you to be Sid? I can imagine punkers sort of seeing you as the living embodiment of their icon. No, it, it, what it is... Someone will see Tinker Taylor and come out and say, I like the performance, I love the movie, and I still love you in Sid and Nancy, though. And it's like all the work since... Was useless. Was useless. It just doesn't add up. I was that punk guy. We have one more question that we ask everyone. Tell us something that we don't know about yourself or about the world at large, a piece of trivia you maybe came upon, maybe something you learned from the BBC or something. Why? Well, I learned to talk like this from the BBC. This is the BBC World Service. See, all BBC reporters to me always have to talk like this. There's always up and then down. Oh, that is the old school of Alan Wicker, isn't it? I don't know. Who is that? Alan Wicker was this front man, and he had a series, and it it was here in the homes of Beverly Hills. Wait, he was a... Uh, he was a BBC, like, reporter? Yeah, he was like a... But it was all about the rich and famous. Uh, Alan Wicker, you know, had a voice that went up, and you can buy a bottle of champagne for... <laughs> And a jet for just a little under $2 million. Yes, this is a world where rich hang with the rich. And, you know, and then it cuts to sort of women with, you know, bikinis and diving into a swimming pool. It was a funny show. I used to watch it when I was a teenager. See, that's something I didn't know about you. And um, I can play a guitar upside down as well. Just like, uh, uh, is it Paul McCartney? No, Paul McCartney plays left-handed, but he restrings it. I'm talking about literally upside down, where it all becomes reverse. See, I think I sense the next step in your career. But that's not, you know, you couldn't watch two hours of it though, could you? (laughs) The man that could play upside down. And Brendan, another thing about Gary, he told me he is ambidextrous. Really? Yeah, Hmm. but apparently not with everything. Like he said, he, he can't write with either hand. 
but he can pitch a baseball with either Wait, hand. Baseball? I thought he was British. Don't they play cricket or something over there? Oh, yeah. I guess he's also ambisportstress. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, while you're online verifying that that's not a real word... It is, it is maybe. You can check out our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. That's it. Next week, Emily Post's grandchildren come by to provide etiquette tips, and musician Catherine Calder shares her dinner party soundtrack, so tune in for that. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner party. This week's song comes from the band Chairlift. They are performing a live webcast concert this Monday, and their new album entitled Something comes out early next year. This is a track from it called Met Before. I believe we have. Bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Dinner Party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We are British radio reporters. Which is why we pronounce the president's name Barack Obama. You can't hear it, but when I say the word color, there's a U in it. And we never use the word the before the word hospital. Up next, 12 straight hours of cricket. Cricket.